Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast, where every Friday we speak with some of the most interesting people in the sport for a scintillating 30 minutes. That's it, because you have other important things to do, like go out for a run yourself. Now, my guest today definitely is, I'm just, I've known this fellow a long time, and he comes from a strong racing background and a strong FKT background. Almost right when FKT started becoming a thing, and I am speaking with Lior Pantalot. Welcome, Lior. Hi. And where are you right now? I'm at work in the office. <laughs> that, now, that, pardon, now, that's Palo Alto, is it not? Uh, yeah, basically, yeah, Palo Alto. Okay. Now... I'm I'm just going to run through this here real real briefly. You start running, you know, middle school, high school, even in college. You kind of came onto the radar, if you will, uh, in 2007 when you started doing races, and you had a period of time there between 2013 and pardon me, 2007 to 13, where you ran 42 races according to Ultra Sign Up. Now, of those 42, you won 36. So you claim you're not a competitive person, but I still, I looked this up, and according to Ultra Sign Up, you won 22 in a row. So you you were at least a fairly competitive person. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, if, if, a, if I put a race on my calendar, I guess uh, I wanted to do well at it and not kind of half job and so I would train for it and do well at the race um as to the best of my abilities um but I didn't I don't think my desire to race was so strong that I wanted to keep doing it for as long as my body would let me type of situation and so it was pretty easy for me um to transition out of that amount of racing and go do other things that interested me or perhaps even interested me even more than racing um, pretty easily Um, because during the entire time um, that I was doing those races, um, obviously training for them required me to focus more on training as opposed to doing projects in the mountains and just having fun in the mountains. You'd need to have some sort of discipline training, but I would always kind of regret it when I would not be able to go to the mountains and instead have to do a 20-mile tempo. And so it was came a point where I was like, okay, I've done enough races. I just want to go to the mountains. And that's what led to doing more FKTs. Wow. You did it. I mean, it's, and it's quite dramatic. You, uh, you won way too cool twice, which is a very fast race. And all this basically is in Northern California. Then six and a half years ago, that was your last race that's showing up and boom, you popped up big time <laughs> in the FKT scene and this is kind of how we met, is it not? I mean, I had done Mount Olympus, and I heard of you, but you went back and did it much faster than me. Isn't that how we became introduced? I think so, yeah. Uh, I Actually, I might have asked you for some, some tips on your FKT for Mount Olympus before I went and, and did it. I think it's a little tricky. So maybe this is catching up from a long time ago, Lior, but I'm still wondering, how did you get across the Blue Glacier solo? Did you just do it? Yeah, so I actually carried crampons and an ice axe, and um, back even, you know, I think eight, nine years ago, whenever I did Mount Olympus, um, 
you know, I, they, the ice axes and crampons were not as light as they are today. And I think that ha- if I were right. to do it today, I wouldn't even bring um, I bring a, a Corsa ice axe, which is like a toy ice axe. And then I would bring maybe micro spikes. I wouldn't even bring the crampons. I don't think it's necessary on a warm day. So I think um, that even my time has been eclipsed by a little bit, like maybe half an hour or something. Um, so I don't have the FKT anymore. Mm-hmm. But if I wanted to, I think, you know, my strategy would be to kind of pare down the gear because I was still traveling with really heavy gear. And, um, you know, the, the the vests that they have nowadays are much better at carrying that gear existed 10 years ago. But it's a beautiful area. I love that. Um, it's pretty simple. You know, it's that 13 miles of just trail running. And then the last few miles are um, on the glacier with a little little tiny scramble at the top. The Mount Olympus route starts in the whole rainforest, one of the wettest places in the entire United States. And that blue glacier is extensive. I mean, that's a big ice field. And that's at an elevation of about 7,000 feet. So it's an interesting spot. It's a good place to kick off an FKT career. I think so, yeah. Now, since then, you've become a Sierra specialist, just like your races were all mostly in Northern California, but your list, you have 14 FKTs in the website. It's really fun to go down this list because these are some of the classics. Look at this, Ptarmigan Traverse twice, Mount Olympus twice, and then you go into right your last ones were in reverse order, the High Sierra Trail, which is terrific. That bisects the Sierras east to west. The Evolution Loop, the Lost Coast Trail, which is right there up there uh, in Humboldt County, right on the coast, the Pacific Coast. And then you kind of ended. And that's another one that follows your lead, the the Lost Coast one. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you. I, I was thinking that, but I wasn't going to say anything. So I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Indeed, actually, I did the High Sierra Trail in, in 1970, but that was before there was an internet. So that was definitely unknown. And then speaking of, yeah, we, we kind of, we've done a lot of the same things because then on the, your next two FKTs were the Whoppers, the John Muir trail, and then the Sierra high route. Yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of Sierra in there. I guess part of that is due to the fact that I moved from um, growing up in Washington state to California um, and I think of, of those, uh, probably the Sierra high route is my favorite and plays most to my skills and passions, um, just because it's largely off trail and requires more planning than just, you know, having a, you know, it's like more self-reliant. You have to plan things for yourself as opposed to following a trail. If you, if you can't navigate, you can't do the Sierra high route at all. Yep. Micro navigation is a big deal. Um, and that's why, you know, there are people have already posted some GPX stuff on it. And fortunately they're not very um, good. Um, but I think it would ruin it for in the future if somebody just made it, um, kind of foolproof to just follow a line on your phone. Um, it would, it would take away that aspect of what you're required to do to, to do well on a, on a route like the Sierra high route. If, if you could just follow a line on your phone. Right. The John Muir trail, like you said, is different. It's all trail and it has a ton of vert. It's, it's probably the best long trail in the world. In my opinion, 220 miles or so going through wilderness areas, starting and finish, starting at Whitney, the highest in the continental United States, and finishing 
presuming you're going south to north in Yosemite. So it's a fabulous route, but the SHR is different. It's kind of like right paralleling it sort of above it and mostly off trail. Yeah, and um, that's what that's what really gets you know my um, it's what really motivates me and gets my passion and energy flowing is is being off trail and seeing wild places. Um, you know, even on the even on the Sierra High Route, when you're on the JMT for short sections, you immediately realize how it's a relative um, zoo. It's just crowded with backpackers um, compared to where you were previously when you were off trail. And it's kind of, for me at least, it's unsettling. You know, I don't like to be in a really wild wilderness solitude feeling, and then all of a sudden have like backpackers, you know, crossing paths every two minutes. Um, and so, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's why I really like the SHR is that, you know, and especially on a year like this year, on a heavy snow year where the route really only became um, doable without carrying heavy gear in, in August. I mean, you, you, don't, you didn't see many people out there at all this year. And, you know, similar to most things in, in our social media age, people like to be on the spots where they can get the selfie, whether it's Half Dome or Mount Whitney or the JMT. Um, but meanwhile, other parts of the Sierra, which are basically all composed of national park or wilderness, seem to be getting less visitors than they used to in the 70s and 80s when there used to be more of a, an, uh, a drive to see wild remote places. Instead, everybody seems to want to go to the most famous spots and get their picture taken there. So it's interesting to see that dichotomy going on in the Sierra. Um, and that's the reason why I love the range so much is that even in a state of 40 million people, like California, um, you can still find wild, remote places in the state, whether it be the North State, in the Shasta Trinity area, the Sierra, or even Big Sur. You made a good point, which uh, I've discussed here before. It's, it's truly remarkable for those of us who've been around a little while, is there's less people in 90% of the backcountry than there used to be, and there's 10 times more people in the 10% of the highlights. It's surprising and it has a tendency to be impactful and it also has a tendency to fake people out as to what's really happening. In other words, like you say, you go up to Half Dome and now it's a day permit to go up Half Dome. A number of years ago, they established a day permit just to go up Whitney. But as soon as you leave these places, you're by yourself. It's remarkable. Yeah, I guess I'm happy it's that way. because, you know, oftentimes when I'm going out on adventures, um, you know, the, the desired intent is to not see a lot of people. It's to have a pristine wilderness experience, um, you know, to get, to get to a lake uh, and not see, you know, trash or places where people camped or use paths, just to have it be as it was for millennia. And uh, I, I personally, that's what I'm searching for when I go out into wild and rugged places. And so it's It's pretty amazing in a state of 40 million people with more people getting into the outdoors. There's no disputing that, which is a good thing, um, because in order to protect these places, you need to have awareness. Um, But it's it's nice that there are still truly wild places. And I think it's not just California, but the United States as a whole. I think one of the beautiful things here is the Wilderness Act. I think it's really amazing, and it's a thing that few places in the world have. Um, So very grateful that we can we can reach a, a true wilderness experience. Europe doesn't have wilderness, period. Yeah, so I, so I have heard. <laughs> they have uh, 
on the other hand, it was so dramatically different. You can be up above Timberline. You can be at the edge of a glacier and have a pretty good meal at one of the refugios with, you know, fine wine. Uh, so it's a, it's a very, very different experience. So you've a little bit of a Sierra specialist with some of the top routes, but let's kind of, you know, continuing to look at this theme here, just like with your racing, you went really hard, you were very successful, then you stopped and switched to FKTs. On the FKT site, a little bit of the same. I mean, you ended up here with Lost Coast, John Muir, and the SHR. You still have the third fastest time in the John Muir Trail, and you still have the fastest time on the Sierra High Route. And that was in 2016, a little over three years ago. And boom, it's like now you're doing something else. And I think you're still going up in the Sierras, but you and I have talked about this quite a bit because we both also like Big Sur. And so you're spending more time in Big Sur wilderness now, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I discovered um, Big Sur, um, it was almost like a treasure trove. I mean, if the Sierra has real wilderness... Um, these canyons in Big Sur, of which there are dozens and dozens, I mean, it's a huge area. The Ventana Wilderness is what it's called. Um, is over 200,000 acres combined with the, the adjacent Silver Peak Wilderness. It's like 250,000 acres. And there are exceptionally rugged canyons. And, and it's even a step further than the Sierra. And the Sierra, you know, you, you can go on Summit Post or, or find trip reports for virtually any peak and there's, uh, there's guidebooks on how to do it. And traveling off trail in the Sierra is usually friendly. Um, there's granite. There's very little, you know, obstructions or issues. But Big Sur and the Ventana Wilderness specifically take it up another notch. These canyons don't have any recorded. There's no how-to guide. Um, there's a lot of complexities. There's very thick brush. Um, there's things that I call the terrible five of the Ventana, which include poison oak and rattlesnakes and ticks and yucca plants, and biting flies. And so it's really rugged and really harsh, unforgiving terrain. But within all of that are these amazing waterfalls. And almost every drainage has waterfalls, sometimes a half dozen waterfalls. And they're pristine, I mean, exceptionally clear, cold water. Um, and they all, each canyon has slightly different character. Some of them have deposits for minerals, creating beautiful turquoise or emerald waters. Um, and so I've started this project to catalog all these waterfalls and visit as many canyons as I could. And there are still several more that I haven't even been to yet. And that's, that just shows you the, the breadth of how much there is there. Um, and so I'm up to 157 waterfalls, but there are certainly many more that I haven't visited yet um, that I'll be trying to visit soon. And so that's kind of occupied me um, in the winter and spring months the last few years. And then as of a couple years ago, I started a project to catalog the colorful glacial lakes of the High Sierra. And so that's kind of um, also opened up a new layer of the Sierra. And I've been traveling the Sierra for a decade. But this project to catalog the colorful glacial lakes, and just as a side note, those lakes are caused by glacial silt, um, is kind of forced me into new spots of the Sierra that I otherwise wouldn't go to. They're not along a trail, not to a peak. They're just kind of tucked away. And I feel like that project is especially pertinent um, with climate change ongoing and basically the remnant patches of glacial ice in the Sierra disappearing. Um, 
eventually, in probably the not-too-distant future, a lot of those colorful glacial lakes will lose their color as the silt from the remaining um, patches of ice melt away. And so what I've done is I've gone through and cataloged, and there's still more lakes for me to go to as well, um, to catalog these lakes and just so, just so there's a record of what it used to be. And it's, and it's interesting, it will be interesting to follow um, when that ice does completely melt away, how long it will take for the, that silt to disappear and the beautiful turquoise or bluish color of these lakes also disappears. Wow, you got two projects going, uh, catalog the waterfalls in Big Sur and the high glacier lakes in the Sierras. Do you have a website where listeners can uh, tune into this? Yeah, so it's just uh, my last name, uh, .wordpress.com. I've got uh, basically uh, pictures of all 157 waterfalls, uh, many of which are ones that I call a, a FKS, a first known sighting. So that's a new thing for you. <laughs> ah, okay. Wolf FKS. This is good. I like it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have no doubt that many of the ones that I have labeled as FKS have been seen before, whether it be Native Americans or early explorers. But, but a lot of them are so remote that there's no recorded history in terms of modern, you know, technology, no photos, nothing. And so, and in addition for a lot of these waterfalls and, and um, you know, I've, I've assigned them kind of arbitrary names, not location-based, um, because a lot of these places are, they're pretty sensitive habitats, and um, Big Sur is, is still, even though it's a wild and rugged place, it's pretty close to a big metropolis in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and, um, you know, I, I definitely, in today's social media age and, and viral age, I try to be um, extra mindful of not, you know, revealing locations of spots that are very sensitive, and on top of that, I think it's important to keep a sense of adventure for the next person. I have no problem with people who respect the land wanting to go visit the waterfalls, but I think part of the joy in it is the, the joy of discovery. And if I posted GPX tracks or, or um, named the waterfalls based on their location so that they could be easily found, it would kind of ruin that spirit of adventure for the next person. Um, I know that for me, there's, it's much more rewarding when I come across something that wasn't necessarily expected or I, di- I wasn't sure if it was going to be there and I wasn't following somebody else's tracks. Um, for me, that's, that adds to the reward and the sense of satisfaction. The waterfall may not even be as beautiful as a waterfall that has a trail to it, but because it's wild and remote and um, pristine and untrampled, um, that adds to it. But to answer your question, yeah, I do have a photo of all of all the falls on the Big Sur Waterfall Project. Um, for the High Sierra Glacial Lakes, I haven't put that together yet, although I do have um, a summary of what the project is and what it means to me and why I'm doing it, um, similar to what, what I just discussed. Um, but I will eventually be putting together a picture. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this in the show notes, the written show notes, if people want to look that up. But it's uh, pantalat.wordpress.com, and that will, again, be in our written show notes. And a couple of things I've always noticed about your blog post. One is you do serious photography. It's not this little um, Instagrammable wee-wee, but you, you like – you like the classic landscape shot. And secondly, Lior, you also do a lot of uh, weather forecasting. You like weather, too. So your, your weather forecasts are, are, are kind of high end. 
Yeah, so I've, I've really loved uh, meteorology and weather since I was very young, maybe like five years old. So it's a fascination for me. If I wasn't an attorney, I'd probably want to be a meteorologist and look at weather models all day. And despite not being a meteorologist, I still do that a lot. Um, but I like, I, I don't, um, you know, I'm a fair, I'm a fair weather uh, hiker, climber, runner. Um, I don't really like being out there in really bad wet, white out weather, um, especially because, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily, if the mountain was right here, like in, like in, like it is in Boulder, I wouldn't mind going out in bad weather. But living in the Bay Area, there's usually traffic and multiple hours of driving to get to the mountains, whether it be Big Sur or the Sierra. And so that investment that it takes to get to the mountains uh, makes me really cognizant of only going when conditions are good. Um, and so I, I like to make sure the weather is good and and not put myself in a situation where I'm forced to go out in thunderstorms or poor weather. And don't forget gigantic landslides, because you and I have tried to hook up in Big Sur for a few years, and they, they tend to wipe out Highway 1 uh, every time we want to go down there. It's open again, and uh, you've been going down with another guest on our podcast, Flying Brian. Yeah, Brian, uh, He's a, he's been running the trails of the Ventana Wilderness for years as well. Um, and we just did a trip last week, a 30 mile route that he personally had removed the logs and rehabilitated. I mean, this trail was almost disappeared. And uh, Brian, along with the crew of Ventana Wilderness Alliance volunteers, um, to spend their weekends um, backpacking out there with large saws and loppers and pruning saws. And uh, they're out there making these trails runnable. And it's pretty amazing to do them with Brian and hear him describe all the various rock walls and logs that he cut out and, and see this beautiful scenery and not have to deal with the brush um, that we have on the off-trail adventures. But I've been doing Big Sur adventures with Brian now for close to 10 years as well. Um, we've had a lot of good trips in the Ventana backcountry, and we both, I think, equally love the, the, uh, the northern Santa Lucia mountains. Right. But there's something missing from your FKT list, I noticed, and that is Cone Peak. You established the, uh, I think, the Stone Ridge segment on Strava, which I got on right away. In my opinion, Stone Ridge on Cone Peak is one of the top five summits in the world for me. And I've been you know, South America, down under Europe, Asia, etc. Cone Peak is top five. It's uh, you know almost from the water straight up and you're always looking at the pacific ocean and i like the fact that there's no little undulations you know it just cranks on up there so uh, you you just you could put that on there don't you have the ascent time uh stone ridge i th- i think it is on there for stone ridge um i think somebody went faster by like 20 seconds or something um but 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 i will say this I enabled that person to go faster because I was the one who personally cleared out uh, a huge section of brush on that. Um, and so I, I, I basically paved the way. I, I wrote the end of my own story on that one. But, yeah, I mean, that's the type of thing that I might, uh, you know, go back and try to do for time. We'll see. Um, but I, I agree with you 100%. Stone Ridge is amazing. Um, you go from sea level to 5,150 feet um, in five and a quarter miles, basically from the ocean up to the summit. And as the crow flies, it's three miles. And so you're three miles away from the ocean standing at 5,000 feet. 
And another, I, I would say, project that I've been doing over the last um, three years is, is going up to Cone Peak whenever it snows. And we call it a snow cone. And I've been to about a dozen snow cones over the last three years. And, you know, it's one thing to have a beautiful winter wonderland scene in the mountains, but to have that winter wonderland scene above the turquoise blue Pacific Ocean, uh, above a temperate forest of redwoods and redwood sorrel and very lush environment up near the coast up to snow up high is really special. And so I've tried to, to do as many snow cones as possible, but Stone Ridge is probably... I agree. One of my f- favorite routes, and I've done it hundreds of times, and I, it's one of the, the trails that I, or the routes that I personally maintain and uh, remove the brush. It's, it's really stunning. Well, thank you. However, you've left some poison ivy. I must comment on that. Uh, poison oak, I mean. Uh, brush, I can deal with the brush, but Big Sur has got, <laughs> you mentioned the big five. Poison oak is the big one, at least in my opinion. Yeah, you know, poison oak is bad, but um, there's a couple things about poison oak. Uh, it's generally, le- uh, right now in the fall when it's lost its leaves, it's kind of the least potent and invasive. It's worst in the spring um, when the leaves just come out. And you're right, in, in Big Sur, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere in the canyons. Um, but you can wear gloves and you can wear clothing and you can take oral ivy or wash with technute to mitigate the rash. I mean, it, it's really just a dainty plant. And so it, it, when I go to a lot of my waterfalls, I'm literally swimming through poison oak. And my entire goal is just to keep it off my face because that's the only exposed skin. Um, but I'm not afraid of just going headfirst right into it because... You know, trying to avoid the poison oak is is a exercise in futility. It's not going to happen in Big Stir when you go off trail. Um, and so, the way I view it is, it's something you can mitigate. I think you can mitigate all of the terrible five of the Ventana, but probably the one that has the most um, worry to me always is ticks. Um, and and not only do they carry diseases, but also they're they're just an arachnid, and you know, a lot of people get reaction to spider bites, and so they're, it's just like that. Um, so for me, even if it even if even if it just inserts its little forceps into my skin for five minutes and then I feel it and take it out, I'll still get a little reaction to it. Um, so they're nasty little creatures. And in the spring in Big Sur, you can run into a tick bloom, they call it, um, where you can literally be walking along a trail and you will have hun- like dozens of ticks crawling up you. It's pretty unnerving. But it turns out, I've discovered, that ticks are most common along trails. Um, Even though they seem like these very primitive creatures, they seem to have enough brain cells working to know that they're going to run into a warm body most likely along a trail. And so I see much fewer ticks when I go off trail than versus on a trail. So they know where to find the deer and humans. The remedy is to thrash into the underbrush, I see. Well, this is good. So listeners, wary listeners might be wondering whether you're you're trying to ensure that you stay not seeing any other visitors in Big Sur or whether you're just telling it like it is. But we'll let listeners decide that for themselves. (laughs) But you've got a great description here, and what a great history. Super fast guy. You won, you know, 22 straight races in the just stop cold turkey and went for the FKTs, including the two biggest in California, of course, the John Muir Trail and the Sierra High Route. And that was over three years ago. And now the Big Sur Waterfall Project and the uh, Sierra 
Glacier Lakes project. And again, folks should go to your website. There's photos of the snow cones up there and learn of a few other cool places one could go. But here's a, here's a, besides tips on how to avoid tips and how to avoid the ticks, Lior, what single thing, if there is such a thing, have you learned in this nice little run that you've had? Pardon the pun. I mean, I think throughout the whole uh, run, I've always kind of tried to stay true to my passion and joy for being in the, the wild and rugged places. And so, you know, even though I did some trail racing and, and um, FKTs on more groomed pathways, um, I've kind of always, throughout the process, always wanted to, to be in the wild and rugged places. And um, that's where I'm happiest and that's where I seek to go. And it's been a progression for me to kind of, I guess, um, not not just learn that about myself, but but um, take it to heart in, in that now I focus all my attention on going to places. Basically, I view it as OKTs, only known times. You know, I go to places where, where, where few other people go to, and that's those are the type of places that are, are the most uh, striking to me and that, and that resonate the most with me. And you found that uh, right down there close to sea level in Big Sur. Congratulations on that. I think that was off a lot of people's radar. I think it still is. And I think, um, you know, I think you mentioned earlier about whether I was trying to keep people away. And uh, from what I've heard, anybody who tries to go off trailer, they learn pretty quick uh, that their typical ultra setup of short shorts and, um, you know, uh, short sleeve shirts is not going to work off trail in Big Sur unless you want to come back scratched up, bruised, and covered in poison oak. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good tip there. <laughs> and then my last uh, question, which I ask everyone, is what is next? I mean, you've always had a next. You just go big, go hard on a, a particular direction then you switch and go hard on something else is there next or is it really you want to finish those last few waterfalls and catalog those lakes you know it's uh the ideas usually come organically you know i, I visited a few colorful lakes and was amazed by them and just one day i thought hey you know there's got to be a dozens of these in this year i want to go and see all of them and catalog them and um and do that before they lose their color and just turn to a normal blue um same thing with the big sur waterfall project i think i visited one especially beautiful waterfall and, and i thought to myself while looking at a topographic map hey there's there's like a hundred canyons like this in big sur there's got to be more of these tremendously beautiful spots um and so you know and i guess just like you said i'm kind of an impatient person um, by default. And it's just like, I want to see them now. I want to go do this now. I want to charge hard. And so that's kind of what I started to do. And all of a sudden it turns into a project. So I don't know what's next, but I'm sure there will be something next. Um, as far as FKTs go, I wouldn't, um, you know, write it off that I won't come back and do some more FKTs, but I'm definitely looking more for things like the Sierra high route. Um, but I'm also, as I mentioned, I'm kind of impatient. I don't like to do repeats um, very often, and so I like to see new things. And so, if there's something new that's like the Sierra High Route, that's definitely something that I'm still um, considering and looking uh, looking for in the future. But as far as repeats go, of things that I've already done, um, that's usually not as compelling for me. Andrew Skirk and I developed the Wind River High Route, which was intentionally designed to be a replica of the Sierra High Route. And I will say, having done both, that 
it's wilder. Uh, the weather's not as good. As you know, the Sierras in the summer are just glorious. And with that pristine granite, the winds are actually more remote and a little more rugged. It's not, wouldn't certainly be an OKT, but it's just coming on. So if you want to leave the Sierras and go to the winds in Wyoming, I would recommend that. Yeah, and I think that, that um, that's a perfect tie-in to one of your previous questions that I didn't get a chance to answer on the photography, is that, you know, I really, really, really enjoy the photography, and more so I love getting to the spots. I love getting to the particular vista that's like this little bit of extra effort, maybe off-route a little bit, but it reveals that really stunning view. And so for sure, I'm in, the, the Wind River High Route is on my radar for sure, but I can tell you with 100% certainty that if I go out there, I'm going out there to enjoy it with, with uh, thousands of photos in tow. Um, I will not be speeding through that with my head down. Um, there will be a lot of there will be a lot of enjoyment and and looking for my spots to to really soak in the views and 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 take in the the more remote parts of that route. Um, but it's definitely uh, up on that list. Um, it's just you know as you said the weather is a little bit rougher and that's that can be tough to plan coming in um, from California. That's correct. That's correct. When we were projecting the winds, Peter and I once said, we, we block out 10 days and just stay here in Boulder. And as soon as you get the window, you get in the car. So you're, you're quite correct on that. You're, you raise a very good point. Oh, and there's, there's actually one other thing I wanted to mention in terms of like ruggedness and weather. Probably the, the, the most of all of those things are my old um, spots where I used to do this in the North Cascades of Washington State, which I th- they're getting slightly more attention um, in recent years. But the Pickett Range in the far north part of the North Cascades up near the Canadian border, it's all trailless and the weather is notoriously awful. Um, and there's definitely um, that area is prime for doing long extended traverses and routes um, off trail. And so that's kind of been, um, jumping around in my head, uh, for a while. And so whether it be, whether it will take me moving back up to Washington state or trying to do it from California, I'm definitely interested in putting together, um, long routes, uh, in the North Cascades, some of these mountains that I climbed when I was in my teens and early twenties going back there, because, um, that area is, is super, super rugged and, and, um, and definitely remains unexplored to, to, to great extent. All right, listeners, you got some really hot tips here from a person who's done a lot of them. And I want to make a quick note here that if you've enjoyed this conversation, please support FastestKnownTime.com by going to the website, making a donation, or signing up for Patreon for a monthly donation. Because as you noted, there's no sponsors, there's no ads, there's nothing else happening, but you supporting uh our new yacht. Well, actually not quite. We're all volunteers supporting the server time that we're renting. We have one uh, FKT here, Josh Sanders, who sends in a donation each time he sets an FKT because he said, heck, it's cheaper than a race fee and I like it better than racing. So please consider going to the website and kicking in a little bit if you enjoyed this conversation. And thank you, Liar. We definitely, definitely will stay in touch with you. Yeah, I look forward to do, uh, doing an adventure with you and Big Sur, or maybe I'll f- finally come out to Colorado. Excellent. I look forward to it.